This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and it is the Sunday where we switch gears. Uh, we didn't read all of the readings for this Sunday because we had the service of lessons and carols, so you heard a lot from the Hebrew Bible, and the gospel that I read to you is, in fact, the gospel for this Sunday. So three weeks of Advent have been the reflection on the major themes of Advent, repentance, joyful expectation, uh, the need for some form of uh, reassessment with regard to the way, the places, the locations we look for happiness. And this Sunday we contemplate the coming of the Messiah. And so the appropriate thing to do is to say something about what kind of a Messiah was anticipated by the people who wrote those uh, readings you heard from the Hebrew Bible. What kind of a Messiah is anticipated or was understood now to have been uh, in Luke's Gospel? And how important is Mary in the divine economy? And what do we understand uh, about that? So I'm going to say some things uh, about these readings from the Hebrew Bible, principally the first reading from Genesis, uh, and then also the Gospel uh, about the Annunciation and its meaning. And it affords the opportunity both to talk about the role of Mary in the divine economy, but also to say some things about how we understand some theological concepts that may be uh, misunderstood by many in popular terms. So it's an ambitious program. The reading from Genesis uh, is one of the creation stories in the book of Genesis. There's more than one. And this is the creation story that talks about how God made the world and he made Adam and Eve. And, and the focus of what I'm going to say about it isn't, doesn't have to do with uh, whether Adam and Eve were two historical persons or not and all that kind of conversation, but what is what was understood to have occurred by the people that wrote the book of Genesis. Most biblical scholarship, at least the biblical scholarship that I learned in seminary, says that the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, were written during the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity occurred in the 500s BCE. And the return from the Babylonian captivity occurred sometime about 569. So that means that the biblical writers were concerned to preserve the stories that had been part of the grand narrative of the people of Israel as they came from slavery in Egypt into the promised land and how they now understood what occurred, what happened to them in the Babylonian exile, and how perhaps these stories have something to do with how we understand ourselves and why we need to remain faithful to this intense relationship that we have received from God with us, not vesting us with special privileges and prerogatives, but vesting us with important responsibilities to cooperate with the divine initiative and in some way understand ourselves to be necessary for God's plan for the cosmos. So this creation story is about God's creating his temple. 
It's about the creation being God's temple and God's space. It is the acknowledgement that God has his own space, but God also dwells in this space that he made, and we dwell with God in this space. So the origin of the keeping of the Sabbath has to do with that day when God dwells in his temple. So remember the people of Israel are coming back from Babylon and they're going to build the temple again in Jerusalem. So if you watch those Bible shows on A&E or who, whatever the History Channel or whatever it is now and you hear all these people talk about Second Temple Judaism, this is what we're getting to here. The building of the next temple in Jerusalem, which will be standing when the Savior exercises his earthly ministry. But for our purposes, making use of this reading has something to do with how you and I share this space with God and that it animates us in such a way not merely to bathe in the presence, but to take the benefits that we have received through our common worship and common life together as the community of faith we call the church and to take that out into the world and to be able to be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that you're called to be. So the reading from Genesis is extremely important about how we understand our Christian anthropology. These other readings are about the promises of God which the Christian people will see as having their unique focus in the person of Jesus Christ. All of these promises about God's liberating work in the world and in their own history how they have seen continuously God's abiding faithfulness in the midst of our waywardness, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our cynicism, in the midst of our spiritual laziness. That God is present to us and redeems us. I've said this to you many times before, for centuries, Christian people have continuously talked about what occurred with the Christ event and what salvation means. And always we hear that salvation is salvation from Salvation from sin, sickness, and death. Salvation from ourselves. Salvation from all of the evils in the world. And the early Christians, the Christians of the first four or five centuries said, we have been through Jesus Christ saved to newness of life, the possibility that we can grow in grace, that we can be instruments of God's purposes in the cosmos, and that we are people who will make a difference, and that God wants everyone to be part, to fulfill the highest of their humanity. And so these readings in the Hebrew Bible are all about how that happens, and how they see in their own history this. The people who heard Jesus speak saw his mighty works, and were the eyewitnesses said, when we now look back at our sacred literature, the things you have heard read to you today, 
When we hear those promises, we realize now that they were speaking of this person. And if we'd have only consulted this, we would have realized that God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is present to us and has been always. So it's pretty good. Now, the, the virginal conception in Luke. Uh, let me do some terminological things here. Uh, the Immaculate Conception does not have anything to do with Jesus' birth. Nothing. Nada. Okay? The Immaculate Conception is a theological doctrine that says that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. In other words, Mary was conceived with post-baptismal grace. So when she was born, she had it. Okay? Now some of you may say, who sat up at night thinking this up? Why did people get all up in the air about this kind of thing? I have other fish to fry. Right? Well, you and I didn't live in the Middle Ages when things got kind of, you know, pretty tightly wound. On YouTube this week, I watched a video, a lecture by Bishop N.T. Wright, who had been up until recently the Bishop of Durham, and he resigned his see and now teaches again at the uh, University of Edinburgh. He's one of the great New Testament scholars. And he said, I was going to a meeting in London, and I got into a cab and found myself in the middle of one of those London traffic jams. If you've ever been to London when you've seen one, you know what they're like. It's just rough. So he's in there, in the cab, and the cab driver looks in the rearview mirror and sees him, and he, he was dressed, you know, as a bishop. And he said, oh, are you a, a, a vicar or, a, a, you know, a member of the clergy? And he said, no, I, I'm a bishop, actually. He said, oh, really? He said, you know, in the Church of England now, they're having some trouble, aren't they? Kerfuffles over uh, the possibility of women bishops in England. And he said, yes, we, we're, we are having uh, some difficulties about that, have some very intense conversations about the possibility of women bishops. And he said, well, here's my take on it. <laughs> my take on it is if God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, all the rest is rock and roll. <laughs> And Bishop Wright said, you know what? He may be on to something. <laughs> so when you think about the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, or what I'm going to speak about now, the Virginal Conception, you may need to remember that. And certainly in terms of your own uh, faith development and how you come to the deep things of Christian faith and belief. 
The virginal conception is the doctrine that says Mary conceived Jesus without the aid of a human father, that the Holy Spirit of God was the agency. So let me work through the biblical text about this so that you have some idea of how we might understand uh, what this means. Do you ever read the Bible sometimes and stop and look up and say to yourself, how can this all be true? <laughs> well, you've heard me. The Bible is true, and some of it happened. <laughs> Reginald Fuller, one of the great New Testament scholars of the last century, he just died a couple of years ago, says this about the virginal conception. What the historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements of this tradition are earlier than Matthew or Luke for the name of Mary, her virginity, and the function of the Holy Spirit are common to both Matthew and Luke, who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. So that's when you sort of scroll back to Father Brewer's you know, breathless tour of the synoptic theory. The oldest gospel is Mark. Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark to write their gospel. Matthew and Luke had their own special material that is unique to their gospel called Special M for Matthew and Special L for Luke. And then Matthew and Luke had an independent source that we do not possess in written form now called Q, which stands for a German word, Quella, which in German means source. So they don't agree in the infancy narratives or the Annunciation stories. That's both Special L and Special M, the way they tell it. And yet they agree on those matters. So here's a little word information. This is my teacher, O.C. Edwards. It's not important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. In Matthew, he quotes Isaiah. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Mighty Counselor, Holy One. If you read it in Hebrew, the Hebrew text says Alma for young woman. Alma in Hebrew means a young woman of marriageable age. When the Jews move out of Jerusalem and they get into the diaspora and they're far away, they forget how to read Hebrew and they needed to be able to read their sacred literature so they decided, or at least the rabbis said, we need to have a Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible. So they created one. It's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, in this passage from Isaiah, it says, Behold, a virgin, Parthenos, shall conceive and bear in her womb a son. And this is the translation that was taken up by both Matthew and Luke 
to preserve the ancient tradition that predates the writing of the Gospels that Mary was a virgin. So whatever you may believe about this, you have to reckon with the fact that this tradition, uh, people labored to keep it. Now, is this all really that important? Because in the gospel uh, that we read today, there's much more to Mary. Much more to Mary in terms of how we might understand her as a spiritual template that we lay over our own emotional, mental, and spiritual states. And her meaning for the people of God through the centuries. And why she is so essential and important to the divine economy. So when we think about this, perhaps one of the things that we could say is that Mary's openness to the plan of God for her is something that you and I need to be open to as well. In the midst of uncertainty and ambiguity and not a little anxiety, Mary had no idea how this was all going to turn out. And she went ahead with it and said to God, uh, let it be the, according to your will that this happen and be so. Christian people through the centuries have understood Mary as a type of faithfulness to God that is compelling and should even now. Many years ago when I was in seminary, there was a group of Trinity Church Wall Street sponsored something called the Trinity Institute. And they would have uh, lectures in various parts of the United States. And uh, the, the Trinity Institute that year uh, usually was at Grace Cathedral and in New York. And this time they came to Milwaukee, which was near my seminary. And one of the speakers at this year, that year's Trinity Institute was Cardinal Sunens, who was the primate of Belgium, Roman Catholic primate of Belgium. And he gave this wonderful lecture about a number of things, but he started to talk about Mary. And at the end of his lecture, he said, Remember when you reduce Jesus Christ to a theological concept? A theological concept does not have a mother. And he sort of said in an encapsulated way, why Mary's so important and why she's venerated. So what it points us to is we're on the poised for the coming of the Savior into human flesh. We need to give adequate acknowledgement to all the players in this process and to see that in Mary's faithfulness it is a type for our own spiritual maturity and to give thanks to God for that. Amen.